Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about we, what we do at officehours.global, our first hour every day on a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your questions, audience-submitted questions. Second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. Today, our second hour title is Guest Preparation is Important. And yes, yes, it is. Anybody who's ever done uh, programming understands that if you're doing interviews with uh, outsiders, with guests, with people who are coming onto the show, the way in which you prep them for success is one of the determining factors in whether or not you end up with a good show, I think. So that's what we'll be talking about in our second hour. This, of course, is our regular daily show first hour. So, Jason, what are our producer viewers interested in today? Today, Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. writes in, when prepping a quote for a client, what metrics do you use to figure out equipment rental costs? How do you arrive at your numbers? And Alex is going to start us off. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Um, yeah, there's a couple of different ways to take a look at this. Uh, generally, what 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 we do is we look at what everybody else is renting that equipment for. <laughs> so, so we go out and we look at, you know, what are the rental rates? Uh, sometimes because we own it, we might give a small discount, a 10% or, or something like that. But generally, we count, we, we stay pretty, pretty close to um, what the general rental rates are because most clients will understand that the equipment has to come from somewhere. And so if they don't want to rent your equipment, then you can have them rent somebody else's equipment. Uh, so that's a, you know, that's an option um, as, as you kind of go through that. So um, looking at other people's, the math is generally for electronics, it's oftentimes 10, 10% of the retail value um, is, is, is a pretty common thing for hardened items like tripods and so on and so forth, it's often 50, one fiftieth of the retail value. And same thing with lenses, things that are going to be used for a long time that aren't going to go out of out of style, so to speak. Um, now, that's also broken down into a, oftentimes what we call a three-day week. So uh, if you, someone rents something for three days or more for a week, you just charge them for three days. So that's kind of the, because you're probably not going to rent it the whole week um, again. And so a lot of rental houses will do a three-day week and they kind of, everyone kind of expects that. So, um, so that, the, you know, that's the calculation. Those are the calculations we generally use when we're thinking about rental rates, um, you know, for, for that process. And that's what you're going to often see in the, you know, kind of in the, uh, 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 in the atmosphere, <laughs> so to speak, or in the environment. Uh, the, the big thing is, is that owning it, you know, sometimes we'll say, why, why do I have to pay for it? Well, owning the equipment and making it available means that you, it's your equipment, you know how it was taken care of, you know how it's set, you know, there's so many advantages to a, for a client, for someone to provide their own gear. Um, but most of us don't expect them, most of us don't expect someone to come in and work on our project and not, um, yeah, not do that. So, uh, yeah. I had the same kind of experiences. And I will say that one of the toughest things, and a friend of mine used to own one of the rental houses in Phoenix, Ozzy Osland, who had... Uh, I'd been there for years and years, and I was talking to him one day about how he sets prices, and he was going, you know, part of it is very much as Alex has said, you know, there's a percentage, we want to make sure that we get the cost of it covered and then have profit for a significant period of time. The tough things he noted for me are the sometimes the latest technology pieces, because you'll go with a camera in and add it to your rental inventory, and maybe it's the hot new camera now, but in five months or a year, Another camera comes out and suppresses it, and suddenly nobody wants the original one. They want the other one. So there's a variety of uh, 
like how much do we have to charge to make sure we recoup the cost of this because it's not a good business model to buy things and then not recoup their costs. So it's a delicate industry. And boy, when you have a good rental house and good rental managers who can help you out, sometimes that's the most valuable thing you have on a shoot is, oh, something failed. And then someone who will run a second model out to you to keep your shoot going. Alexander, you had some thoughts? Yeah, well, more of a general question. So if if I came to you and I said, I don't, I'm trying to start a business, I want to help people uh, produce podcasts, let's say I don't have any cameras or anything, what would be wiser going out, taking out a loan from the bank to get the gear that I need, or just on the invoice, putting what it, the cost of the gear is going to be, you know, for the rental and then working it out that way? I think every CPA will tell you one of the things you absolutely have to deal with is depreciation. Literally, from the moment you buy a, an asset like a camera, the next day, because it's suddenly not new, it's used, it's going to lose a certain amount of its value. Some things have very sharp depreciation curves, things that are highly technical. And as I was describing, the new model might make them semi-obsolete. They're going to depreciate real fast. The IRS allows you, uh, they have depreciation tables, and sometimes you can get one year, five year. There's even a thing called Section 179 where you can depreciate the entire asset in the first years. And those are things you have to talk to your CPA or whatever your financial advisor is about to figure out what's the smart way to account for the fact that everything I buy in my shop is losing value literally every month you own it. And um, that's one of the reasons we love things like grip gears and C-stands, because, you know, at the end of 20 years, they're sometimes worth almost as much as the day you bought them. Alex, you had more thoughts? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that we, uh, that, that that type of equipment tends to, the stuff that's going to last for a long time tends to rent for a lower markup, you know, or a lower um, amount of the total. So like, a, a, a again, like a, a grip piece oftentimes will rent at, you know, two percent or five percent of the of what its value is. Two two percent is pretty common. Whereas, if you rent a Blackmagic camera, oftentimes it's going to be you know somewhere between one tenth and one twentieth of the cost. So it's going to be much much higher percentage because it has a higher probability of breaking, being lost, you know, all being outmoded. Um, as far as buying equipment, a lot of that comes down to. Um, there's basically three big reasons that you buy equipment. One is the volume. You're doing it a lot. You can amortize it very quickly over a handful of shows. So if you know that you're going to use the thing 10 times in the next three months and you're going to be able to rent that or 10 days of rental for the next uh, in the next three months, it's probably better to buy it. Now, if you don't think you're going to use it that often, then, then don't. The second thing is um, stability. When you rent equipment, people treat equipment like they rented it. And oftentimes they're not, it's not in great shape. Um, and it also looks different when it's on there. One thing that we, because Pixelgore, when I, when I had Pixelgore there, we owned almost everything and everything looked like it came out of the factory almost all the time because, you know, everyone treated it really well and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, and so, um, so that is, uh, you know, so, so it, it looked different. We looked different, you know, at, at behind backstage and that made a difference in our, and then the final thing is innovation. When you have it there, you'll do a lot more with it than you would do when you have to rent it. And so when you're really trying to create something new or create something great, a lot of times having it in the studio makes it means that it can sit there for a little while and you can figure it out and you can work through it. And those are things that don't happen when you when you don't own it. So th those are things to kind of, you know, keep in keep in mind as well. Generally, 
we we when we owned everything, um, you know, we own a fair amount of stuff in own I know, not quite the same as Pixelcore. When we owned everything, we just ran laps around everybody that was renting because we could sit there in the shop and work on something for a couple of days with all the you know with. You know, we had 20 Terranexes sitting around and 30 switchers. <laughs> Just kind of put things together and make them work. And also oftentimes add value to the production without charging the client. So we would have what they rented, but we'd go, nah, we're going to put a couple extra things in there. And it made it very hard to compete with what we were doing because we, we owned it. So, But, but it, it also is you're paying not only for the, all the hardware, but the storage <laughs> of that hardware. So that's something you have to keep in mind, too. Particularly that last point I wanted to emphasize, because for me also, if you're renting a complex camera and you've got it for one week, how deeply are you going to know it? And to Alex's right. point directly, if you own it and you're working with it every day and you can take it out just to explore the menus and learn what the functions are, you'll get far better with it than you would if you just got it for a week and then turned it back in. Let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, what is the preferred order of operations for live mic gain stages, EQ, gate, compression, etc.? Alexander will start us off. Alexander? Yeah, there's different schools of thought on this. I The way I approach this um, is, a spe is particularly going to be different than maybe what somebody else would do. But um, I like to put EQ before compression. And the reason for that is because... If I'm going to be cutting or boosting frequencies, that's especially if you're boosting frequencies, there's going to be an increase in overall volume as well. So I like having the compressor just after that to kind of keep the overall average levels in check. Whereas if you put the EQ after the compressor and you start doing really drastic uh, boosts to any particular frequency, then all of a sudden, that compressor is not doing a whole lot now to clamp down on transients. And for live streaming, uh, where you need to keep peaks down below zero dBFS, you want to really, really be careful there. So again, th there's if you're going to be producing music, there's you know people do it differently. Sometimes they like the way it sounds when they EQ into compression or vice versa. You just have to experiment. Alex. Yeah, there's two parts of this. One is the the processing game, you know, stages as well as the equipment stages. So one of the things you want to be careful careful of is making sure that your equipment from from item to item is properly set up. So this comes and you kind of work from one side to the other. Typically from I I typically work from the source to the output. And so I want to make sure that my audio is is full range coming out of my my transmitter. I want or receiver. I want to I want to make sure that it's properly managed, and once you get, it's hard to do it with this with the transmitters. But for the individual um, uh, individual equipment, usually you have a tone generator somewhere, and you're generating that tone, saying this is, you know, negative eighteen or negative twenty or negative sixteen, depending where you are in the world, and you you set everybody sets there. You set all the way down the chain. You go down the chain and make sure that they're all showing in the meters the same thing. So that that everything is set so that 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 is you know is one version of the truth from the mixer to the output, and a lot of times there's stuff in between those things that you have to be managing and and making sure that those are the same. Then you're making sure that your your gain is correct on you know your sources, and then that should that should make a big difference when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to your um, mics themselves. Uh, or, or when it comes to processing, uh, you want to make sure you get rid of the stuff you don't want first. So um, I think that Mickey said in the thing, subtractive, then, then additive. But that's get rid of, the, you know, using gates or expanders or whatever you're going to use there. Get rid of that first, then add EQ 
to it, um, you know, and and figure out what you want, then compress it. And oftentimes, I try to compress it only at the end. <laughs> just try to pull everybody together. Uh, I try not, I don't tend to, I, if I do a compression on an individual channel, I'll tend to be very gentle with it. And then the, the bigger compression happens right at the very end with all the channels to kind of pull them all together. So those are the things. But the the thing that really kills people is going between the equipment. You know, when when one thing is gained weight is is got a low output, and then you're gaining up. Anytime you see yourself turning a dial, you want to pay attention to where you're turning your dials. Anytime you see your, your, yourself turning a dial really hard, some certain direction, something's wrong. <laughs> like just immediately go. I'm turning this up to eight. I don't know why that is the case and I need to figure that out, you know? And so a lot of times you'll see me look at change really quickly if I start seeing myself turning a dial very high. The other thing is you often notice when you start to gain up, that last little bit of that brings in a lot of noise. So, you, you're, you know, and that's what happens with your gains is that you either are clipping and getting it lower or you're, you, you suddenly have a ton of noise in there that, that you're having to, you know, manage. So those are things to, to, to watch out for. Alexander, you had a quick follow-up? Yeah, and just general rule, and since we talked about live too, and Alex touched on this a little bit too, is that first step, that initial, your gain structure is so crucial. Like if you do not get that first step right, the rest of the processing chain is going to fall apart, especially for live use. So I would say if you're doing live sound, pre-fade or listen, set your gain correctly and watch your meters as well to get it to the right point, you know, around hovering around zero. Uh, give yourself enough headroom and then the rest of the chain if should be fine after that. All right, let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, can Apple AirPods Pro be a useful playback device for checking mixes? Uh, Alexander, give us thought. Sure can, why not? There are so many people, unfortunately, you know, you put all this work into your mixes, you've got all this high-end gear, and uh, eventually it ends up going into the ears of very, very inexpensive earbuds. Uh, so I would say, yes, why not? You should check it. Uh, one of the things that I like to use is there's a company called Aventone Pro. They make a set of monitors uh, called the Mix Cubes. And the whole purpose of the Mix Cubes are to simulate bass-challenged uh, consumer speakers. So car speakers, um, clock radio speakers, horrible TV speakers, which you, you should never use. The, the, like those types of monitors, having a secondary set of monitors to kind of simulate those types of situations, those listening environments, what people are using will really, really help you. So if you think uh, it's going to help you translate your mix, yeah, I mean, check your on your AirPods. I certainly do. Jason? I think of any playback that is colored, meaning it's not a perfectly flat response as... Uh, as kind of a post check. So of course you're going to want to check it with the AirPods Pro. You're going to want to check it, um, you know, with, with, you know, the junkiest headphones you can, you're going to want to check it in your car. But when you're actually mixing, I think studio monitors, uh, the important thing to know about studio monitors is that they're not designed to make anything sound good. They're, they're designed to make them sound accurate, which means, you know, just, just as, uh, you know, you need corrected vision to be able to see things correctly. It's designed to present to your ears as accurately as possible. So the answer is yes, but I would think of it more of as a post-production check. Alex? 
<laughs> there was a trailer. I would, I can't think of it right now. But the, uh, but the, the, the this guy was talking, and he told the woman, "Yeah, well, she, she said something like two people are going to die." And he said, "Well, that's not very nice." And she goes, "I wasn't trying to be nice. I was trying to be accurate." <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, I would use these as a test case to see how a consumer may listen to your mix. I would not use these as a reference, like the only way that I listen to them. You'll end up making compensations that are very, you know, difficult to undo. So I would recommend something that, that's more of a reference uh, headset uh, that you're going to use Audio-Technica or, or Sony's or whatever you know what it, how it looks. But it's, it's a good idea to listen to a mix that way just to know what, it, what, what a consumer might listen to. But you have to have some version of the truth that isn't, isn't as colored as the AirPods are. Yeah, I'm going to 100% agree with that. And just one last note, try to figure out what your audience's experience is going to be and mix to that. I had a circumstance where I had something that was going to be on a subwoofer and I didn't pay enough attention to the bass. And on the first day playback, it just didn't sound great. And when I changed the mix because I knew they were going to employ a subwoofer, everything changed and the whole sound profile just improved immensely. So if you know you're going into a nightclub, for example, and it's got huge bass, Pay attention to that. It's why a lot of music is mixed for that kind of environment. Let's move on. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, what are the preferred camera shading order of operations? Nigel, start us out. Well, I'm glad you said preferred, not the correct, because I don't know if this is the correct. This is just what I happen to do. And so first thing I do is I'll bring up Noviscope. And I should explain I have a Blackmagic 6K. And, uh, and a Mac setup. So I bring up Noviscope, and I make sure I've got my Vectorscope, my waveform set to RGB. I also have the false color and an input. Then I go to the Blackmagic software, which uh, should hopefully give me the option to change uh, what I'm about to do. And the first thing I do is in the bottom left-hand corner, oops, bottom left-hand corner, I don't know what that thing is with the puck, but I move that up and to the right. And what I'm trying to do is to get the RGB at least particularly between 0 and 100. What It's pretty much in the middle when I stop playing with the puck on the left. I then use the, lit, uh, then use the contrast to try and spread that to get myself as close as I can to the top and the bottom of the 0 and 100. I then add in saturation to try and get myself the color right. And then I'll start playing with the individual... Uh, different variations if I feel the color is right or wrong. But basically, I'm trying to get the great gain in the right place. I'm trying to spread it with contrast, and then I set saturation. At least that's what I do every morning. Alex? Yeah, and there's two things here. I mean, especially when you're talking about, I'm going to refer to this from a live perspective because live and film are different in, in how they get approached. Uh, but but the for, for live, um, the first thing is there's painting cameras, and then there's shading cameras. With a shading you're generally only affecting one thing, and that is aperture, occasionally gain if the aperture doesn't have the reach that you need. So when you're shading a camera during a show, no one's, you know, you're not playing with color. You're not, you definitely don't want to play with color because trying to get back to that, to, to matching all the cameras becomes a big thing. So, and I'm also talking about not just one camera, but matching cameras. So when you, um, because you're going to put a lot of time oftentimes into matching the cameras. Now we use a thing called a chroma demand chart um, and we put the cameras up against that. Now what, what, the first thing that we do oftentimes is to have a camera and we get it to the way that the director wants it. In the old days, that was, you want to be accurate. So you put it up on a chart. The DeMont chart has a bunch of squares on them and they will fill out a little form on your vector scope. Like you can literally see the little dots just jumping between the, the targets on the vector scope if, with the DeMont chart. 
And so you just tuned the camera until they all did what they were supposed to do. And that was an accurate look. A lot of people, though, want it to be warmer. They want it to be cooler. They want it to be a certain look. And so what we would do is get the first camera up and make it sure that it's matching exactly. Then we would take the second camera and or getting it just the way they want it. Then we would take it and then match the second camera to the first camera and the third camera to the first camera. Always match to the same first camera. <laughs> don't don't go first to second, second to third. It's like a telephone game. You'll your last camera will be very far off from your first camera. So so anyway, so we would match those cameras. Um, now we're playing with all the colors and the saturation and everything else. Then we, we you know we load you know all those cameras and remember that you have to when you do this you have to use the same lenses on the same cameras that you're going to use for the final shot. You can't just rearrange all the lenses. Every lens, the lens is actually a big piece of the color. So some lenses will lean green, blue, warm, you know, all kinds of other things. And so you want to make sure that all those lenses are on the right cameras and you mark them carefully, uh, even if they're the same cameras. Um, and so then, and then after that, once you get into the show, you're generally, you have got a big controller for the, you got a big controller for the aperture and that's what you're using most of the time. Um, and again, if you can't reach with the aperture, you may use gain. And you may have to close it down a little bit because of focus issues. Then you'll gain up those cameras. But you you try to avoid that uh, when you can. Nice. Uh, don't forget, it's uh, your questions that are driving the show. So if you have additional questions, put them in. And it's equally important to vote on those questions because as has been the history here, the more votes a question gets, the quicker we get to it and the more time we spend on it. So your votes are always very important. That said, let's get to our next question. Douglas Carmichael in, he doesn't say, writes in Audio-Technica has launched the BP3600 designed for immersive audio content. Has anyone had experience with it or similar mics? Alex. Yeah, we used an Ambio, the Sennheiser Ambio mic in the, uh, at, at our, um, at NAB when we were doing our 5.1 test, and we plan to do more of that testing soon. It was really impressive, <laughs> you know, just, just that little one, and it's a much smaller version than this is. Um, this looks like a really, um, uh, really exciting mic to, to use. It would be very hard for us to use it the way we use the Ambio because we're kind of going moving around with it, but I think for pure recording, um, this is a mic, I think it has eight, eight input, you know, eight mics, um, and it can be used. It, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it's, an, or it doesn't talk about being ambisonic. It's like, a, it's just recording beds, um, you know, out for a five, four, five, one, four, but five, four. Um, it, I mean, I think that that's the, it, oh, Mickey corrected me. It is ambisonic. I just kept on looking at the literature. I don't see him talking about that. And they do talk about direct processing as well as, um, you know, so I wasn't cl clear. Their, their documentation is not the best. So anyway, um, I did try to look through that and didn't, didn't see it clearly uh, laid out there. So, uh, so I haven't used this mic, but it does look like a really impressive mic that I think that we will, as we continue down our path, we'll see if they can send us one to play with um, with our little system. It'd be a little harder for us to transport those channels, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Stay tuned. There you go. Next question. Talalik Lopez-Waterman writes in from Salisbury, Maryland. Is there an AI solution that can look at an email with a series of dates and put them in your calendar? I often get emails from companies with a list of events in the production schedule internal to the email. Jason, start us off. I don't think it's AI, and this is not going to be a perfect solution, but, but Apple Mail will do this. Um, if you use you know the Mac app and maybe create a sub-calendar that is proposed schedule show dates, you can very quickly click on any date in an email and it will say add event. 
again, not AI, not perfect, not all the time, but um, it's a good 90-90 compromise. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I Again, in the Apple ecosystem, I used to use Automator a good little bit, and it has date math you could use. it. Again, this is not uh, artificial intelligence. It was simply you could do calculations based on text fields and text strings. So I believe there was a find date application, little little um, subroutine in there. And then you could calculate, say, take that and then find some other character. If those emails are formatted the same way, and this is just literally a monthly or weekly kind of calendar that comes out, you might be able to figure out a way to parse and extract data from them using a tool like that. I'm sure there are other tools. Alex, do you have any experience? Yeah, the biggest problem, the biggest problem is formatting, is that everyone sends you those dates, but they send them to you in different ways. They type the name out, they give you the raw dates. And so, uh, I would lean on Jason's solution, and then most almost everything else we've done has not been 100% accurate. And if it's not 100% accurate, then you have things going into your calendar that aren't accurate, and so we've usually skipped it. <laughs> this way madness lies. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Cheering Cheetah writes in from Dallas, Texas, looking to connect several OBS bots or ops bots to an ATEM Mini using the new USB to HDMI converters. If I do this, am I still able to access the cameras via OSC commands? Alex? We don't know yet. Um, so we haven't been able to test those. I don't know. I don't know anybody in our group that has them. So, I, Or maybe one person has them. So we'd have to test that. But you'd have to get both those converters in the same uh, place. Um, but I haven't seen anybody um, do that. We know that it doesn't work. The USB commands don't work from the Insta360 through the OBSBOT. I tested that. Um, but we don't know whether um, there's a, some secret sauce for the OBSBOT itself. So stay tuned. Okay, next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana writes in, since the long-awaited firmware update to the Insta X3 is here, is there a compelling workflow for using this as a webcam for Zoom? Alex? Yeah, it, it's, it is. Uh, um, we expect more firmware updates from the Insta360. <laughs> so as it, go, get, as it moves forward, uh, we expect it to get better. Um, and so we do think this is going to be a compelling version of it. I would like to get both of these in, uh, I would like to get both of these in a lab and look at both of them, compare the OBSBOT version and the, and the Insta360. I have a bunch of the Insta360s. I don't have any OBSBOTs yet. I've tried to order them, but I haven't been able to find them available, at least when I go up there. So, uh, so we'll, when we get them both in the same place, we'll take a look at them and compare them and contrast the quality of the image. That's real. It's really down to the quality of the image. I think both of them have a lot of good feature sets. I think the Insta360 looks like it has better software um, than the OBSBOT, but the OBSBOT has OSC. So there's like, that's what, all the things that we're weighing right now. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, how good is the AnchorWork M650 wireless lavalier microphone, pro noise cancellation, swap magnetic colorful color covers, two-channel quality pickup, 200-meter transmission, 15-hour battery, easy to use for vlogs, but why not for conference? Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is another one that kind of sits in the same area as the Road Go, as well as the uh, DJI. I think the DJI has been one a lot of people have really kind of leaned into. Um, so the Anchor AnchorWorks is not something we've seen in the wild that much. But for conferences, the reason you don't use them is because there's a lot more people. There's a lot more people. There's a lot more wireless. It's a lot more distance. You don't use these for the, that kind of thing. Um, and that's just a recipe for unhappiness. <laughs> so, um, you know, these are great. 
as little little ones that you might use in a Zoom or you might want to, all these, all the sub $300 range or sub $400 range mics are things that you use for VOD because if it breaks up, you can do it again. There are things that you um, that you use for small Zooms. There are things that you use for, there's interactivity. I would not use them for anything that is um, significant. Uh, you know, in a, in a conference, usually there's a lot of money rolling around. Alexander? Do we know what kind of wireless technology this uses? Because I looked at their specs page. I can't see anything that says if it's 2.4 or if it also uses the, the higher 5 gigahertz bands or... I think it's it's using some version of Wi-Fi to do this. I mean, I'm not sure which one it is, but it's so it's in that class of of, of stuff, and it just it's a high. It's um, it it won't go through very much. <laughs> so so I you know I think that you you want to be pretty careful of using them in you know mission critical things. And I've had the same kind of experience. Inexpensive wireless microphones can be beautiful. In, if everything is exactly right, you've got line of sight between the transmitter and receiver and people are close enough, they can sound great and work great. The problem comes when you have anomalies. And we had, I, I'm not signaling out the road goes, but in the early days of that, uh, there was a lot of talk on the web about don't put them behind somebody and then put the receiver at the camera because even the mass of their body can interrupt that flow, the, the connection between the two, and you can get dropouts. Now, you can work around that. You can move it to the side. But that's not the kind of thing you're going to be wanting to think about when you're in a professional circumstance. You're not going to tell your client you have to move only parallel and you can't turn around and walk towards another person. So the higher end are much more robustly engineered and they are designed at that level so that they always work. They're incredibly reliable. And and I would go so far as to say a reputation for reliability is probably the single thing that drives certain names to the top of the list of let's use these over and over again. They've proved they will do the job every time. No excuses. And that's what you're paying for sometimes, that kind of engineering. Let's go to the next question. Alan Scott in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, writes in, has anyone used video.ai? And that's V-I-D-Y-O dot A-I. Video. Uh, Alex. This this looks like another descript, to be honest. <laughs> you know, like, so this is, a, you know, this is like, now, what I'm not sure of is if they're connected to the larger vid, video um, is a is another, there's a gateway application that was actually, um, you know, used for video conferencing um, that is a, a, a much larger company. And I'm not sure whether they're, they're connected because it's, it's not clear. It seems like they're making some product separation there. So, uh, so we're not, not 100% sure um, if that's the case. But, but I think that um, if it is, then they're connected to a larger video conferencing thing. But I think that it's, it's a small market. A lot of things could happen. But I think that there are other market players that are probably a lot larger than they are right now, like Descript. Let's move to the next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, this video shows how the Insta360 Flow is being used as a stationary camera for a cooking show. Could this be the ultimate cooking show camera? Alex, the, the word ultimate scares me. <laughs> Anytime you say ultimate, the answer will be no. Like, like you know, like the, so, so ultimate is a word that we will immediately go, no, no, it's not the ultimate of anything. There's, I don't know of any camera that's the ultimate for something you know it's just this is what we use for this thing uh, i think that the from a cooking show perspective i'm pretty excited you know i'm gonna be doing some more tests next weekend um using the insta360 link uh, or a series of them um, putting them all together and playing with putting them into a 
uh, Zoom room and outputting them out so that we can edit them separately. And I think that that I'm, I'm much more bullish about the the the, the link or the OBSBOT than I am uh, trying to hook up phones, you know, to stabilizers. You know, like that's gonna, that's really cumbersome and painful. Whereas you have these little cameras that are really easy to mount and very small and easy to put in different places. I think that's going to be a better solution. That makes sense to me. Let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes, has anyone used Leonardo.ai? Thoughts? John Preto, our resident uh, expert. Uh, John? I have used it. I have an account on Leonardo. And it, the general models that it creates is okay and on par with uh, Dolly, maybe one step below. The cool thing about Leonardo is you can create your own models. So if you up upload a bunch of pictures of yourself or your of your NFTs or whatever you're into, it will generate models based upon your model that you built, which is super cool. Is there specific things on some of the other AIs that cause you to say, listen, if I have to do this kind of work, I go to this and I go to that. I know you use most of them. I go to mid-journey every single time. <laughs> so mid-journey is your, is your key player in this. Yeah, there's still there's still leagues ahead of everybody out there right now. Interesting, Alex. Your thoughts? Yeah, and and um, this is uh, Leonardo is is one of these. The other one is Scenario GG dot GG. Um, we did the AI um, get together with them, and they do things that are similar, where you have a ton of dials that you can actually control to build game assets specifically. So those are um, two of them that are that are kind of in that range. It's interesting that they're specializing a little bit now, and I'm wondering if it'll eventually be, if you're doing real estate ads or something like that, you should be over here because it's, it's better for that. I think what we're seeing is is that they are that, that, that there's a lot more control in some of them. The, the next step, uh, I mean, I'm sure John would probably agree with it, is, is getting more explicit control over wh which direction it's going. So right now we're kind of like you're you're talking to you're talking to kind of a, a savant that is a little crazy and just kind of like you're like trying to figure out how to talk to them to get the get the picture out that you want. But eventually you're going to be able to go. I want this. And um, and then when it does it, it goes, well, a little less in the background or a little bluer, or I want the nose to be bigger. I want this stuff. You know, you'll be giving it commands and it'll just keep on changing the changing that process to get there. But I think that that's, um, that's, that's where it's going to get to. And so some of these ones that we're seeing with Leonardo and with Scenario GG is giving you a lot more explicit control. You may not have the breadth and depth that you get with MidJourney, um, but you get more, you're giving that up to have more control over what comes out the other end so that you can make it operational. Um, and I think that you're going to see that continue to kind of evolve until they're all that way. I mean, it's going to get to a point where they're really, they're all doing something that's similar in the, not or well, a couple will win, <laughs> you know. But but it'll be a few. A few will win. We don't know exactly who. We we have leaders right now. But but being able to get to a point where you can just whether it's music, video, stills, text, you're going to sit there and be able to go back and forth. I think ChatGPT in a lot of ways is the furthest along when it comes to saying, I, well, re refine this and change it the way that I want to change it, or change this the way because it's just text. But eventually, we're going to see that across the board. So directed iteration so that you can put constraints on it and say, do another one more like this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or say, give it photos, like draw some rough things and say, this is a tree, this is a da 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 and you know, I want that to be a oak tree, and I want this to be this, and I want this to be this, and you're just kind of sketching it all out, and then it just kind of fills it all in. And, and NVIDIA does some of that as well. Nice. Uh, John, you had another thought? 
Alex is absolutely right on the money. Uh, so remember, Google was like the the 13th search engine that was available. Remember how many automobile manufacturers there were at the turn of the 20th century, right, Jason? That's right. Um, Very good. And so, and so you've got all these people out there playing in this field, and some will bubble to the top, and some will die. And we have to remember that when Google came out, we, we you know, Midjourney and 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 a lot of Dolly and a lot of these other ones are are really big right now. But remember that when when Google came out, we were like, how could you ever compete with Yahoo and Alta Vista? And <laughs> you know, like like you know, like there's all these big ones that are you know there were there were you know there were all these huge search engines that you were like, I don't know how, why why they're even bothering. And then yeah. there was that. So. Oh my gosh. So who will be the Studebakers and who will be the Cadillacs? And uh, we don't know at this point. There, A lot has to shake out. Josh Kaufman, you had a thought on this topic? Uh, you know, on the who can compete clause, who who's can compete with Google search? Um, didn't see that one coming uh, as far as using AI to, to get me to use Bing. But um, I'm curious about the negative uh, prompts for some of these. I know in the Leonardo one, they lean heavily on curating and using negative prompts. And I don't know, it just seems to me like a lot of the negative prompts are pretty um, obvious. Like, I don't want it to blur. I don't want to have all of these issues. And a lot of people just repeat the same negative prompts over and over again. It would seem like um, having a hard coding setting of something, I guess, depending on whether you're you generating different types of images, I guess that might be some of them are more like towards people and some of them might be more towards things perhaps. That's interesting as it moves in that heuristics kind of, I want it bright and shiny, but well, not this and, or that. And you can, and, and I know in mid journey, you can set up suffixes where you say, I want a whole bunch of stuff at the end. That is stuff I use all the time. Like I might want everything to always be 16 by nine, or I want everything to always be this. And I can add a series of commands at the end that are going to be, that, that are basically what Josh is talking about, hard coded into every request that I make. I type out what I want and then it just adds, you know, eight different things, you know, into it at the end that, that I can change at any time. So I can decide I'm in a zone right now, you know, while I'm creating this thing, because a lot of times I try to create uh, thumbnails for, for this week or for um, uh, Mac break weekly. And so I'll just set the, that parameter for that moment and then just start making my, my requests and all those parameters just keep on getting added. It's just a lot faster. So um, I think you can definitely, you know, you don't want them to de deepen the code as a user. You want to have that flexibility. But you would do, it really is, once you start using it, it's super useful. Do you think it'll ever get to the point where you can say something like, make the orangish thing on the right bigger, and yeah. it will interpret at that level? You think, yeah, oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, yeah. This is going to, I mean, the amount of uh, development right now is, there's just so much money floating around. You know, it's a lot of, you know, fuel in the air, you know. And so so there's just a lot, you know, it's explosive at the moment. You know, and you're going to see a lot of changes. And we saw, this is the way it is for everything. This is the way it was for search. This is the way it was for, you know, video. This is the way it was for uh, cars and oil and, and mining. And, you know, like, you know, there's a huge rush. Railroads, there were so many railroads, like so many like random little railroads that were all out there. And then it all came down to two or three. <laughs> you know? and, so, yeah. um, and, and so it's just this, uh, it's, uh, so we're gonna see that over the next five years, but within five years will probably be, there'll be three or four really big ones that we all use. Excellent. Well, if you have more questions, this is the perfect time because we're moving into the last module of our show here. Uh, so make sure that you get your questions into the Mukata system. Make sure you vote on the ones you want us to spend a little more time talking about. And at the top of the hour, we will be making our transition into our second hour topic. So we still got a good little chunk to go here. So thank you for all of your uh, 
process of driving the show with your questions. We appreciate it. Let's get on to the next one right now. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, the Insta360 Flow requires a USB-C to lightning cable, three inches long, very thin and flexible. Where do I get such a minuscule cable? You know, specific cables that do one thing have always been the bane of my existence because whenever I'm going out on a shoot, that's the most stress is, oh gosh, that's right. There's this one cable that affixes this this to that. And if I don't have that specific cable, I can't just go down the street and buy one. Alex, what are your experiences with this? It should have come with it. (laughs) If it doesn't come with it, then um, the two places that I would look are, of course, Amazon and Monoprice. Monoprice has just about every length of everything that you might might be looking for. Um, but, uh, But I would probably look at Amazon first. Yeah, I will also say that when I have a cable like that, I tend to either put that device in a case and make sure there's a place for that cable right next to it, and it always goes back there. I consider those kind of mission-critical cables. And if it's just something relatively small but still important, I tend to use a, a Marks-a-Lot on a um, oh, sandwich bag kind of thing, one of those heavy-duty sandwich bags, and make sure that it's in there and it's labeled as uh, this kit item to must take because – I, I don't ever want to be in that position where the whole thing doesn't work just because of one silly mistake on my part of not bringing the right cable. Next question. Nate Smith in Grand Rapids, Michigan writes in, I've been generating 33.3D LUTs to in resolved for e- live ENG cameras, and I'm noticing artifacts around clip white in the feed. Am I doing something wrong? My color checker has card white, but I can't figure out how to correct above that level. Alex. Yeah. So if you're using the LUTs to do this, uh, I would just, it sounds like what you're doing is you're pushing white almost to 100% or at 100%. You want to probably pull back just a little bit. You can, you know, if you're using LUTs to do this, you can always use aperture to push them up a little bit higher. Um, But I wouldn't peak higher than 95% and probably 90% is really what you want to look for for those whites. Um, You know, pushing them all the way up is is going to have it really stretch that that out. And I think that that may be what you're doing is you're taking those whites all, and maybe not, and let us know. Uh, but but I think that you're, it sounds like you're pushing them all the way to the white, all the way very, very close to 100%. And that's probably not where you want a reflected white to be. That's where you want a projected white to be. But a reflected white is going to be a little bit lower than 100%. Yeah, I always get scared when I see 255, 255, 255 yeah. on a sample. Yeah, I mean, you want to be, like, I, I, typically no I would room. say 90%. You know, 90% is where you want to be. Black, you might go between 5 and 10%. You know, like you're not... You generally aren't pushing all the way to pure black um, because you have a tendency to, to clip things out on both ends. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada writes in, is there a way to run DaVinci Resolve 18.5 beta without overriding the existing installation? I want to test the beta features as they'll save me significant time, but I want a backup plan. Alex. I don't think you can do it without them sharing the databases, and I would not. I would run them on a separate machine. <laughs> like I would definitely not put the beta on. And in general, I would give the beta. Uh, I I I know that it's important to test the beta, and it might save you some time. Blackmagic rarely puts out a beta that's production ready um, or even close to it when it first comes out. So I would probably wait for one or two updates before I even started testing it, uh, unless you really have a free computer. But I would put it on a free computer. Um, on its own, you, you know, testing things and being very careful that you don't get into anything that's deep water until um, it, it, it solves itself. They, they, they tend to be pretty aggressive with their beta program. There you go. Next question. 
Nate Smith in Grand Rapids, Michigan writes in, has anyone used RCF point source loudspeakers in a medium-sized venue? I've used Martin Audio and D&B's entry-level stuff, and I'm wondering how RCF compares as they seem to be much less expensive for similar driver specs. Uh, Neil, it's, it's Nate, I'm sorry. Um, you know, speakers are a funny thing. This is my personal opinion, but all the specs in the world don't really tell you what they're going to sound like and how they're going to work in the real world. I mean, specs are important, and I would never uh, not pay attention to them, particularly the safety specs like power handling before the, the cones start to shred or stuff like that. But when it comes to how they sound, you know, you say they seem like it's their kind of sort of the same in terms of specs, but those kind of things can sound very different. I've had speakers that I thought were going to be very smooth that had harsh points just because of how the coils and drivers were fashioned. Um, it's not always as easy as reading about them. I do think in a lot of cases, you have to hear speakers to know what they're really like. Jason, you had thoughts? Yeah, I just, I, I want to double down on that. To me, the cone is one third of the sound. The second third of the sound is the enclosure. Is it a band pass? Is it a first order, second order, third order? Um, is it a sealed enclosure? Is it ported? And then the, th the last third is the space. And as you get more familiar with, you know, the first two thirds, you might be able to project how it's going to sound in the space. But until you do that, I'm sorry, but the numbers are, are just not going to help you. Yeah, Alex. Yeah, I you know, and, and I think that I just I just want to keep on underlining that that the the thing you want to be looking at is uh, what are you using it for and how you can use it. And and a lot of times with this gear or any other gear, what I'm looking for is rentals. You know, how do I rent things that I can put into play, see how they react, see what is there or what's missing. Uh, and it's really hard to buy, you know, buy them without without knowing those things. Yeah. And you say medium-sized venue. I also would be concerned about what you mean by medium-sized. One person's medium-sized on a scale of stadium to, you know, your bridge in front of you there. People consider medium to be a pretty wide range. And the biggest gotcha for me is can they handle the power level and can you get enough of them at your budget to make sure that you're not overdriving them? Because I have seen people just keep pushing and I've seen people running at 10 and trying to get to 11 just because they don't think the audience can hear things. And that's pretty dangerous. Alexander, you have some thoughts? Yeah, I've I've done installations and live sound before. I haven't tried the the RCF stuff, um, but I did look at the, the specs. And again, they look good, but as People have already pointed out, you may want to try to find a rental house to rent something and talk to them. You need to give very, very specific details about the room. What is a medium-sized room? What's the square footage? What does it look like? Um, photos would probably help somebody who who could really build a solution for you that would work. Uh, and uh, um, we can talk about it offline, too. You can always message me on Discord if you have any questions. Jason, your thoughts? Yeah, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that, it, and you probably already know this, but if you have a full room and an empty room, humans are big bags of water. Um, and, you know, we, we really, we, we change the way that sound appears in a in, in a venue. Is there a balcony, for example? Have you gone up to that balcony with people on the floor to see if there's any difference? These these are small things that that really can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Let's move to our next question. Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, what are the tips for starting into mid-journey? Ooh, big subject. Nigel, give us some help in the beginning here. 
Well, I, I'll give you the two sort of horsey, horsey, ducky, ducky, easy ways, and, and then we'll let the smart people uh, get, take you from there. The two most important things to do are to understand that the interface into MidJourney is via Discord, so you need to to learn and make sure you have a proper Discord uh, uh, thing set up. And then find the newbie room and watch and look. Don't be too horrified by some of the images. You'll, you'll, you'll recover. But you've got to learn how to imagine, how to write those ideas down in a way it can it can interpret them. And the best way to do that is just watch what other people do. Look at the impacts that when they change something, what effects it has. And then after a while, start. Start easy, start simple, uh, and grow. But that, that would be my first two tips. Uh, John Preto, extend. Tommy, uh, send me an email in Discord. And I'll add you to our server if you're not already there. And we have a room set up in there and you can practice in there and run through your first 25 renderings. And then if you want to continue, you can uh, sign up and and then continue to use our room. John, that is incredibly uh, generous of you. I also know you've been doing this since almost day one. What are the what are the first two or three things that really helped you get over, uh, get start getting success with it? Do you remember back in your early days? Midjourney is interesting because they've chosen to use Discord as their platform. It's not like all the rest where you go to their website and you create an account. They've used they've they've used Discord very smart here and saved a ton of money. And they're using all of Discord's resources. And they're the largest Discord server on the planet right now. I don't know, fourteen million members or sixteen something crazy. Um, and so having to jump through those loops is a little intimidating for people. So you go to you you go to to Midjourney's site and then it 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 makes you go over to Discord, create an account over there, and then you get lost in their server because they've got a bunch of different channels and you don't know what you're doing there. And so uh, you kind of go into the newbie area, whatever they call it, newbie or starter or beginner or whatever, and start doing some renderings there. The problem with that is they go so fast you can't see. You have to scroll back for your artwork. So we've decided to add it into our server where there's very little traffic and you can render in there at, at peace. And uh, so jumping through that hoops was was a little bit of a, uh, a work to, to get to um, your artwork. Absolutely. Well, there you go. Very, very good thing. So don't just go into the uh, the Discord system and try to navigate the, the traffic all going down the highway at 1,000 miles an hour. Uh, a nice, quiet sub- island like john's is really useful alex your thoughts yeah there's a couple things um definitely you can sign up for john's server we have it on on the on our discord server as well i think any discord server can add it i I believe i don't know exactly what that is but we've added it as well so you'll see a a thread of our stuff going through as in inside of uh office hours and so you can do that as well um i do recommend exactly what john said which is to go watch and whatever and what nigel said is go watch what other people are doing um you know you want to go in and there's so there's the newbie section and that's really kind of the blind leading the blind what you really want to do is scroll down to the themes so the themes are where you end up with some more power users that are using it and um and they're gonna you're gonna see a lot of uh cues um that are there are prompts that are really useful you know and so uh and you go you look at something and go oh that's how to do that or oh this is you know something there so i think that that is um something you want to pay a lot of attention to is before you start using up your first 25 because after that you have to start paying for it 
um, you know, look at what other people are doing, write down things that you think and look at images that you like and look at trying to suss it out. Now, not all of the terms that they use are, there's a little bit of like superstition <laughs> that, that goes on within uh, mid-journey where they add a bunch of things that I don't think make any difference. Um, but uh, there, there are things that do make a difference. Like I do stuff like shoot, shot with an air, you know, or filmed with an airy short depth of field, you know, um, prime lens, 85 millimeter. And I think that, you know, I get definitely, I get definitely get different images <laughs> from it. So, so that you may, you may start putting those things in, um, but you'll, you'll definitely learn a lot, um, you know, just by looking at what other people are doing. If you think that you were going to have fun with it, I definitely start with the the short fifteen dollar a month version of it. I got the yearly loaded version that's private and has lots of server time. It's like fifty bucks a month. And I just bought it all in one time, and that me meant that I don't have to really think about it. I just use it all the time. And so I, um, there's one of the things that I use it a lot for is my presentations. Um, so pretty much most, if it's not a photograph that I took, and it's not a diagram, it's it's usually something I generate at a mid journey as an example, you know. And remember that there's there are certain cues that are really useful. A dash dash AR sixteen by nine, sixteen colon nine, um, is a really useful one because it's going to give you the frame that we think we're going to get here. Um, then other things that are useful are, um, uh, you know, over a you know basically. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that, that, you know, getting that frame rate right, asking for ultra real. Remember that you can load an image in. So you can take an image, load it into your conversation with the, with your with MidJourney and then refer it, copy that link and put it in. So it says this person as this, you know, as the Hulk or this thing as this. So you can use an image as a reference to kind of guide it towards what you want it to look like. Um, and that's a lot of fun. Um, so, so anyway, so I think that, um, but I would... Uh, we should do another second hour where we talk about it and show images that we did and and what maybe what the prompts are. What I also do is I follow a lot of people on Twitter that are using um, all kinds of different ones. What's interesting is the prompts oftentimes cross over. So I saw someone do something on a prompt for uh, Dali and immediately went in. I'll, t I'll copy and paste that into mid-journey and see what happens and then make adjustments. So um, those prompts oftentimes are useful across the board. There you go. Okay, hopefully, Tommy, that gave you some food for thought. Let's move to our next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, in the University of South Carolina has launched a security operations center that has students providing IT security services. Is this an answer to the shortage? Ooh, Jason, what do you think? No. Um, every, <laughs> sorry. Um, every, every college does this to some degree. Um, I, I don't know if the University of South Carolina is doing something different or unique or special. Um, students almost always help each other. Almost every university has a help desk to some degree. And um, no, it's not the same as a professional because they're students. <laughs> yeah, it'd be an interesting thing. Um, I, yeah, let's just move on to the next question. Nate Smith in Grand Rapids, Michigan writes, in update, card white is exposed somewhere around 90 IRE, but in the venue, I have light fixtures in the background that blow out, but not horribly, but noticeably. In the room, it looks awesome on camera, not so much. Alex, help him out. Yeah, that's gonna be tricky. Um, you know, so it sounds like you have lights in the shot that are that are that are that are much brighter than whatever your reflected white is. One thing you're gonna have to look at is that knee that you're using to get to the final white. So um, basically, when you think about the curve that you're that you're using, let's see if I can. You know, oftentimes you're, you know, a straight linear curve is like this. Um, you know, that's that's going up. That's a horrible color. Hold on for this for what I'm trying to show you. 
Um, let me uh, let me do something else here. There we go. So um, so you know this is your linear curve, and then when you're starting to pull gamma up, you might pull the gamma up to here, and it's going to be like like this. Um, but what you want to think about is this area here is what's going to white. So you may want it to go, you may end up with a curve that wants to go more like that, um, you know, as you think about it. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time to get from that last little 10% to pure white. And that might be enough to, to buy you a little bit of extra space. And let's go to our next question. Lalek Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland writes in, what's the process of trying Resolve for iPad? Ooh, Alex. Uh, install it on on your iPad, and then I believe that the next step for you there is to load. You're going to need to load images into um, your files, your file structure within iCloud, so that you can get the get to the images. Um, and I believe that there's a way to sync it up with your with your the software that's on your on your Mac as well. Um, but but I think that to get to some of those resources, you'll you'll need to do that. And I'm not a hundred percent certain. I don't. It it does really want to use the brand new M1, you know, or the the most powerful iPad. So if you're using an older iPad like me, like I haven't updated to the the latest one, it's a little chunky. And so I I only opened it for a little while and said, well, I need to get a new iPad. And then I was like, I will get to that at some point. So that's that's that, that was the extent of my experience so far. All right, we have one more question before we uh, get toward the top of the hour here. So oh, we have two more. Okay, uh, next question. Jean Chandil in Los Angeles writes in, labeling on USB cables is terrible. What is the best way to sort them by speed so I can rebuild my cable collection? Jason, help us out. Mm, I've done this every single sort of way, and I've seen it done a whole lot of uh, other different ways. So uh, what I've seen is, um, you know, nail polish works pretty well. You can put a dab of nail polish on the end of the cable. Um, the most effective way, I, I think if you're really just about speed is um, you don't actually need to label them other than by using just a little bit of colored gaff tape and that'll allow you to sort it by color and the colors can mean different things and um, that should allow you to, to quickly categorize them when you're when you're coming and going. Alex? Yeah, and um, electrical tape is pretty useful as far as coloring them, uh, what they are, because it's a lot more flexible. So, you know, it's a lot more flexible, and, and one little wrap of that can do it. There are definitely labeling. I mean, you can use a labeler on it, and it, and it will, that with a little bit of tape will stay on there for quite some time, possibly forever, maybe even if you didn't want to. Um, but but it is, um, but yeah, the, hard, the hard part is normally we would shrink wrap them, but you really shrink wrap doesn't really work because you have to go over the, the, the piece that's there. So, um, so you end up with kind of a, uh, we end up taping them on and then retaping them occasionally uh, with with the numbers on them. But again, electrical tape is useful for us because you can get ten different colors and have them all mean something. As 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 uh, as Jason said. Next question. Uh, James Haldine in Vancouver, BC, Canada writes in, can anyone suggest an inexpensive standalone HDMI recorder? I was looking for something under $100 as I need 10 of them. Under $100. Alexander, any thoughts? That's uh, a tough one. Aver Media does make a product called the Easy Recorder 330. It will record to a micro SD card and it will also record to an external drive so you could try something like that and it looks like they retail for about 110 dollars us right now on amazon 
Nice. Very nice. All right. We're getting close to the top of the hour here. I'm going to give you a reminder before we get there. Uh, tomorrow's show, Black Magic Unreal Inte- Engine Integration. So Nick Justice and our friend will be back from Drexel University to show how Unreal integrates with uh, Black Magic, Decklink, Ultimate, Atom, things like that. On Wednesday, that's our audio days. If you've been around a long time, you know we try to concentrate on audio topics on Wednesday. And this Wednesday, we're talking ambisonics. We'll break down the fundamentals of it as a format and explain how ambisonic microphones can uh, be decoded into multiple virtual mics. So that's it. On Thursday, the video day, we're going to be talking about the basics of video content creations. Um, This is a thing that I've talked about a good little bit in the past when I was doing some work for one of the magazines. Um, There's five general areas I used to try to focus people on. There are far more than that, and we will not be going into depth into all of them. So it's just a good overall uh, how things work in production and the flow of that. All right, we are coming up right to the top of the hour here, and that means we're going to be moving into our second hour. And this is a topic that we've been kind of dancing around for a long time. We've talked about it on the show uh, a bunch of times, and it is something that is really critical because most of the, well, I wouldn't say most of the video, but a lot of the video you see is guest or panel driven. And so preparing guests for Appearance in your video is one of the thing is the the main show that we're going to be talking about, and I have to admit I was trying to kind of get my head around this topic, and I made a typo, and instead of writing guest preparation, I wrote guest perspiration, <laughs> and I thought I thought wait a second that's actually kind of uh, appropriate because sometimes guests if they're not extremely used to being on camera in a show format, get very nervous. And so there are many, many aspects to getting someone prepped uh, so that they don't come on and um, show themselves in a way that they don't want to. Public speaking is one of the biggest fears out there. In fact, I saw a list that said it's the number one fear right uh, in front of heights and dogs, to be precise. Um, So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Prepping for live events, prep for recording takes and interviews, uh, how to handle remote guests and studio guests. What's the difference? What are the similar things? Um, This all kind of comes under the headline of directing talent as well. But this is really before you're directing them in a live circumstance. This is getting them in the right mood to do their best, to show up and be proud of what they manage to contribute to your show. So we want to talk today about best practices, things to avoid, appearance issues. I'm sure we'll discuss things like getting them comfortable with dress and makeup and hair, and if those things are a part of your prep for a particular guest. Um, There's just a lot of stuff that we'll be talking about, and we'll be talking about some of the tools. So let's dive in. We've got a couple of special guests here, and particularly I see Shannon Cooper in the corner of my... Hi, Shannon. How are you? It's great to have you back on the show in person. How have you been? Hello. Uh, Good. Um, Nice to be here. It's great to have you back. As you know, Shannon has done thousands of these. She's worked with Alex for many years and has dealt with everybody from the absolute top of the A-list celebrities down to people who have never had any experience with doing this kind of work before. And so she's going to be a fabulous resource for us today to tell you really what it's like down in the trenches as you're talking with somebody and preparing them to come on a presentation and to do a great job. So we've also got questions from the panel and we're going to incorporate the panel into the into this in the very beginning. So uh, folks on the panel here have raised their hands to talk about this. I'm going to go to Nigel first. Nigel, what are your thoughts about guest prep? 
So I, I really want to make two observations, and I, I, I'm sure everyone else on this panel has forgotten more about this subject than I'll ever know. But I, I approach this more as someone who goes onto things than someone who helps people come onto things. And I, I would just like to make a sort of upfront plea that when you're doing this, please be patient and don't make assumptions. That there's nothing worse than when you're about to join a show, walk on a stage, and the person who's there to greet you and help you is harassed and overworked and stressed and confused and doing 10 other jobs. And it doesn't fill you with great confidence. So whatever we talk about, that's my only plea. When when you get to the guest, be patient with them. Don't make assumptions. As I think you said, Bill, this is this may be a big day for them. Don't make assumptions about their timing and their life. Yeah, I actually think of it as emotional management. And I, I, Shannon will know much better, but I think getting people calmed and, and into the right headspace is a huge part of making somebody look great on camera. Josh, your thoughts? Yeah, there's quite a broad range of guest preparation depending on the event, whether it's a live event or whether it's a recorded event. Sometimes we're just looking to get a sound bite out of our participants. And so, you know, there's some coaching or things that we can do to, um, to guide them in the proper direction. Or, or we're setting them up for success to be a part of a, a live event participation, uh, a participant, in which case we, you know, take care of the uh, different glaring issues that we see if guests come in. Um, and there's different um, ranges as far as how much preparation we can do. Um, sometimes we have uh, enough time in advance to where we could uh, send a, a kit out for them or we can have them order something that can arrive on Amazon uh, before the event. Um, that's a lot more preparation. We can have them move furniture around um, for sound or visual uh, you know, effects. Uh, we can pre-test them in the same time, the environment that we're in. Other times we're just triage. Uh, here, here's a person, you have so much time to get with them and we just do the best, uh, the best we can. We do the most effective thing that we can do in the shortest period of time. Um, we also have different uh, levels of, of cooperation uh, with our guests. Sometimes our guests are completely on the same page as us. They appreciate the importance of them looking and sounding good and they cooperate with us and they do the best that they can to give us the time that we need to prepare our guests. Uh, other times, it's, it's something to where we have to really make the case for why they should, you know, take the time and work with us. Uh, you know, how, why they should uh, give us a little extra time uh, to prepare them. So it's it's a wide range of things, and uh, sometimes it's a it's a fantastic art and preparation. And sometimes it's a triage. <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that, Alex. You've done this a zillion times and spoken about it at length. What give us your thoughts? Yeah, well, one of the things that's hard is that is that broadcast has done such a poor job at this that it really makes all of our jobs much harder because people are used to the abuse <laughs> you know like you know that, that everyone the viewers used to it um they everyone's like well no one asks me to do this no one asked me to do that you know i was on cnn last week and they didn't say any of these things and and this is like a really common problem that we um you know that we run up against and we just have to explain yeah well that did you actually look at what you sounded like <laughs> you know, like because like, we a lot of times we review other things that someone who's especially high profile has done and usually whatever they're being asked to do by the broadcasters is just downright horrible you know and and so it is it's embarrassing like it is a completely and um hey you're bill i can hear you you're coming through the main mic um so uh so anyway the um uh anyway so um the uh I think that one of the things we have to do is get kind of get over that um, and, and have people understand. And one of the things that I think, you know, Andy Carluccio had mentioned in a talk we did at NAB was that 
when you, uh, and I just think this is great, and I think this is what a lot of people walked away with in that seminar, and I think that we want to keep on remem- remember- remembering this. When we talk about production value, when we talk about the quality of what we're doing, um, when the production, that production value, whatever it is, is defining what we think is important. Are we important? Is the user, is the viewer important? Is the information important? Is the brand important? If those things aren't important, then just open up your laptop and use your internal mic. <laughs> like, you know, like, like if, 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 if none of that matters, if you don't matter, if your viewer doesn't matter, if, you're, if, if your subject doesn't matter, um, then don't bother. You know, don't bother with anything. Just open it up. If they do matter, if, if this is in, if, if what you're talking about is important, if, if you think you're important, if you think that the, the, the viewer is important, then you're going to want to up your game. You know, and, and a lot of times, you know, that's something that's kind of a, a very concise way of saying it. Now, a lot of times, you know, we are talking to folks where we're trying to, um, you know, guide them towards that. And a lot of times what I'll say is, um, hey, you know, we're going to do this with everybody. And so we want to make sure that you look, you know, we don't want, we don't want you to come in <laughs> looking less than, um, than everybody else. And so that oftentimes sets things, sets people up. And sometimes there's nothing, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> so, Sonia, I'll leave. I'll let Shannon continue. Yeah, Shannon, uh, we're really excited to have you here because I know you've done this a gazillion times. Just talk to us about your process. Um, well, the first thing I was going to say was um, uh, when Alex mentioned, you know, we've prepped people, broadcasters, you know, that have been doing this for for years, and they say I'm fine. Uh, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't need any help. And. And it's true. I'll, I'll I'll see them on CNN or I'll see them on you know a, a station, and I know that I know that they I know that they're not fine. And there is a percentage of them that will immediately change their setup, like right then and there. Order new mics. Um, be receptive to the fact that we want to send the mics in the cases that that we do send mics. But I've had broadcasters literally change the way they approach their their remote hits, um, you know, on on um, you know applications like Zoom, just because no one ever told them how how they they just didn't sound good. They weren't using the right mic. They weren't using the right setup. So um, it's it's always such a pleasure to know that that we've helped you know create better um, better remote setups. Absolutely. I know you've done so many different kinds of people. You've worked at the top of the game with people who are on media constantly, but you've also worked with a lot of people who have not been in there. Can you give us a few tips? I've run into the circumstance where people just nervous. You know, you can tell that right before they go on or right before you send them over, they're just starting to kind of come in on themselves. What are some of your techniques for helping them be good? Um, I think, I think at one point dropping all of the technical discussions, you know, for people that aren't technical, you can't up until the last minute be fiddling with their audio and video and, and their setup because they're just going to be stressed about it during the show. So I can, I kind of read that stress level. I mean, we hopefully get people on early enough to where we have that time to deal with all the technical um, pieces of it, and then just have a conversation. Um, talk to them about the content or how their day is, or just get them in a relaxed state. But the last thing you want to do before you go live is um, tell them things that aren't working, because now not only is their setup not working, their uh, their uh, their interview is going to be really stressed. And and so calming the guests down is to me one of the biggest um 
the biggest things because there's so many things that I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at their audio, their video, their, their, you know, do they have a window in the background and, and they're frantically trying to cover up the sun that's coming in. And, and, and as soon as you start, as soon as they're, they're concentrating on that, they're not going to concentrate on the, on the content. Absolutely. Alex, you had a further thought. Yeah. I mean, exactly what, what Shannon said is a lot of times you, you know, being present and being in a conversation is a very delicate thing. And it's something that we've, we, we know when we talk about just regular events, when, even when someone's coming to a location, the, the importance of a green room, the importance of hair and makeup, the importance of the food and the tea that they wanted, the importance of, you know, we, we, we pay a lo- enormous amounts of attention to, to, um, to high profile guests when they come into our space to make sure that they are in the right mind space to be present and to and to give the best performance they're going to give. And a lot of times for virtual events, we don't do that. You know, we don't really set them up for success to make sure that they look good and they sound good. And part of it is making some requests. Now, some people are not going to accept that. But what you want to do is make the requests that are po- and explain to them that our job is to make you look good. You know, make sure that you 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 have a great performance in front of a lot of people. And so one of the things that we get into a lot of times is, you know, that that prep, you know, we, we're going to send you a little dial, you know, we're going to send you a little uh, something to fill out. And that just tells us what kind of computer you have and what kind of connection you have. Then we want to do that that little uh, week before, three days before, something before we want to, we want to actually see you in your space with either the kit we sent you or whatever you have. A lot of times we want to make sure that's at least three or four days before because we want to be able to mail, mail you something if we decide that that's worth it. Like if we see something that's wrong, we want a, enough time between your prep day and your show day that we could mail you something, have you turn it on and try it again um, to make that happen. And so um, so that's that's the other piece of that. The other thing is that we'll always request a lot more time than people are comfortable with. We're going to say, hey, we really need you there an hour before or half an hour before. And the reason we're doing that is because, you know, we want them to, we want to be able to handle whatever the technical issues are and then let them settle, you know, let them settle. And the best thing is if they can settle with everybody else that's going to be in the panel, they're all laughing and they're building up that connection and they're talking and everything else. And so that's why a lot of times we get into the the thing that we talk about where we have, you know, they'll come into this area. We move them into a kind of a holding, you know, holding pen um, or reception or lobby or whatever you want to call it. Then they might go through some kind of hair and makeup, digital hair and makeup, and then they might go into a green room, and then they might go into the room that they're going to do the event in. And sometimes the green room is the room that they're going to do the event in. And sometimes you might have three or four groups of people. So you might have different groups that are that are building up here, and our Zoom ISO is just dropping into each, you know, our, our thing is just dropping into each one where we don't have to, um, to do those. But the point is, is that this pattern, that process it allows everybody to kind of calm down. And, 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 and I think that a lot of people get the technical part of it. And I think broadcasters just get into this. They're just churning through people and they don't really care because boy, does it look like that most of the time when they're doing it. And so, uh, so they, you know, they, they're just kind of churning through people. And, and I think that, you know, for us, when we're building these, we really want to think about how people feel like when when you when you first start doing an event you're always like we survived like or or we didn't right that's that's your measure of success when you get a little bit better you're always talking about whether it was you know flawless right so was was it flawless um to so you first are just trying to survive then you're just trying to make it flawless then you're trying to make it flawless and and feel smooth for the client and the folks like does it what did it run smoothly and then that next level up from that is how do, how do people feel? 
how do people feel? How do the client feel watching it? How do the the people feel on the on the show? How do the people feel watching it? That's when you're really reaching that that level of really creating great events. And most people don't get there. <laughs> Sometimes we don't get there. But those are the things you want to kind of pay attention to. Absolutely. Alexander, you had a quick one? Yeah, just, you know, thinking about the entire process, the entire chain, as we're talking about this for, for guest preparation, something that's been on a lot on my mind, I feel like I really need to work on this because I shoot a lot of podcasts in this studio space, primarily with in-person guests coming in. And my client, he's he has a bit of anxiety when he comes in. And one of the things that I always find frustrating for me as someone who's tr trying to make everyone look their best is I usually spend about 15 minutes just getting people framed up and checking lighting and checking sound. And, and he seems to he he gets into a conversation immediately while I'm walking in front of the cameras. And then he's always asking me, are you recording? And is, are we going to be able to use this? But of course, I can't use it because I'm walking in front of the camera, you know, checking things and adjusting. So that's one of the things that I'm looking for as far as advice. Uh, hopefully, Shannon is, is you know, what can I what can I say to my client? Um, what can I change? What can I do to make people feel more comfortable and explain to them that there are certain technical things that have to happen before we can actually really start the show? Shannon, you want to respond before you go, we go to Josh? Um, sure. I think, uh, you know, I, I also have a hard time when I'm, you know, as soon as you, I was going to say one advantage to getting people in early is they have an opportunity to talk to the host and, and the, ho and, and I, what happens often is they get into really deep conversations and sometimes some of the best part of the conversations are that. And uh, I, I don't know if there's anything you can say. I have a, I have a hard time interrupting because I am doing technical, um, you know, technical checks and, and there is a little balance of, especially if it's a really sensitive subject. I mean, people talking about, you know, conversations that you definitely don't want to interrupt. Uh, I just, I think, you know, you're doing your technical stuff. I don't, I don't know if there's anything you can say. I think it's just not usable content or use audio pieces of it. If there's any way to take advantage of audio pieces. Also, I think that the guest, I'm very sensitive until I say we're live or we're recording. I, I'm really, I really um, am sensitive about ever using any of that content because those are private conversations perhaps that are happening that, that um, if they don't know that they're being recorded, um, there, there may be things that, that they're saying that they don't want recorded. I mean, a pre-interview is really valuable to, to pull out um, questions, you know, for the interviewer that, that they want to then reframe that question, or they, they want to use some of that, inf that information in an interview, but people tend to let their guard down when they're not on air. And so I'm, I'm just leery about ever using that. Copy that. Uh, Josh Kaufman. Yeah. There's this weird culture that, uh, people will not tell you when you look bad or you sound bad, or if there's a problem or if there's something on your face, like we think we do. But, uh, you know, if you've ever looked in the mirror and you're like, wait a minute, these people didn't tell me that I, I had this thing happen. And it, it compounds, it makes our job a little more difficult because then we bring up things to people. And I, I almost think they wonder, well, how come no one else has told me about this issue or this problem that uh, now all of a sudden this is a problem, an issue? And they're like, no, it's not, it's not all of a sudden. It's, this is something you've probably carried around for a while. But this weird thing where people will just, instead of 
telling someone their mic is really loud. They'll just keep turning them down every time it's their turn to speak or turning them up when they're too soft or, you know, glaring at them or just thinking that that's the way that their, their setup is. So there is a bit of a balance um, as far as, you know, uh, depending on how much uh, leadway that we have uh, to work with a guest, uh, how much we can do ahead of time and how much we can tweak them. Sometimes if it's just triage, then we just take up the edges off, uh, you know, the, the most uh, offending things that we can do, or if there's some things that we can intervene with, uh, you know, technically, we'll take care of that. Um, be careful, being careful not to go over the edge, like Shannon was mentioned, about something to where they feel that we've taken care of them and now they're putting their best foot forward as opposed to us being a, a personal critique on them. It's almost, I, I always, uh, the sensitivity that, that Shannon uh, talks about, I, I, uh, I definitely... Um, resonate with in that anytime you tell something somebody something that's wrong with them you're not trying to but it's almost as, as like you're telling them i don't like you <laughs> like that's just the way it comes out often sometimes and so you try to make sure that you are, don't convey it in in that way or that doesn't come across that way because people tend to take it as a personal critique as opposed to something like oh we're just trying to to make you look the best and sound the best Shannon, you had the response to Alexander's before. Did you cover everything you wanted to cover or do you have a, an additional comment? I think so. No, I, th I think I did. Okay, good. I want to make sure before I go on to Alex. Alex? Yeah, there's a there's the old saying that, you know, give me the the strength to change the things that can change the the patience to, you know, accept the things that I can't change and the knowledge and the wisdom to know the difference. And this is where this really comes in. You look at someone's frame and you make a decision of, oh, I think I can make that better. And then you ask them to do it. But things that you can't make better, you don't talk about. Like, and you have to know and experience tells you which one is which oftentimes. Um, but you want to be very careful. You'll hear us say on, on comms, hopefully not on the show, leave the knife in. Like just like someone will be fiddling with something and someone will come on comms and go leave the knife in. And that means, you know, what? don't <laughs> don't pull that out. Don't try to fix that because it may be way worse when you pull it out than it was right where it was, you know. And so just leave it there. Um, and so, because there's oftentimes something that's wrong with someone's setup and you just can't fix it and trying to fix it ahead of time. We had one where there was, it's a little off, little, just a little tilted, just a little. And we asked them to change it right at the very last minute. We're like, hey, can you fix that? It was a couple minutes before. And when they moved it, we didn't realize they had kind of taped it there. And the whole camera just kind of fell sideways. And then we're going into a live landing and then we're trying to get them to put it back up again. It was very stressful. And that's the kind of thing you want to avoid it at all, at all costs. There you go. We have, oh, Shannon, you wanted to come back, please. I, I, I was just going to say those last minute changes. Um, uh really unless it's catastrophic don't do it because you will as alex pointed i remember when that camera fell and there are times when um there's something wrong with the mic and 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 you know those are maybe things that we're going to notice more than than everyone else and you have to think oh can i fix this later can i is there anything i can do about it like you have to go through that in your head and you really have to make those decisions about is it catastrophic? Is it really, is it, is it so bad that I have to stop? And then there's the potential of something, you know, snowballing. So, and sometimes it takes up, up your partner, you know, someone else on the team to say, leave it, you know, like Alex said, leave that knife in, don't, don't make changes. It's, it's really hard to make those decisions. And, um, and we're not always going to make those, we're not, we're not always going to make the right one, but those are things that, that are constantly going through like my head when, you know, when I give the go to go live, I have to just know what's what what do I want to change or or in and and that's probably like a 
maybe one or 2% of the time that it's something that bad that we actually have to stop and, and make someone get out of their chair, fiddle with something. So who knew that risk assessment would be such a big part of this, but that does make perfect sense. Uh, We've got our questions here. So Jason, what do we got? We sure do. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, what guest preparation best practices do you send to guests? Josh Kaufman's going to start us off. Josh. And typically I'll have something that's pre-made that has a visual um, sort of an infographic that gives them the good and bad example next to each other. So some of the items are, you know, make sure, of course, that you're on uh, internet, uh, ethernet instead of Wi-Fi. Um, Sometimes we can't uh, we can't get a, a cable to them, and so we try to make sure that they're the, as close to their router as possible, as being the internet is our top tier. Um, we try to get them to use um, natural backgrounds versus virtual backgrounds. Sometimes the um, way that we can coerce people into saying that is actually, you know, the, the setting that we're looking here for is not having a video conference call, but it's actually something that's a natural setting. So that's why we're preferring people to use natural backgrounds. Um, we like to make sure that they're well lit on their face. There's not something that's overlit or a distracting window in the background. Um, making sure that the camera is at eye level. Um, one thing to note is that um, in movies, when they want to diminish a character, they look down upon them. Uh, and so we don't want our guests to look less important. And also a low camera can be unflattering. Um, and also our, our framing size, typically there's a framing guide uh, that we'll use uh, for this um, and try to not use a uh, black or white um, uh, wardrobe uh, and any strong patterns are um, discouraged. Alex. And oftentimes we have a kind of an order of, of importance. And so the first thing that we'll tend to do is, a, is look at an internet. So we want that we want to know, can we get a wired connection? And people can get a wired connection. It's not really, can they? Will they? And so you, you have to gently try to figure that out. A lot of times in the kits that we send out, we send 50 or 100 feet of, uh, and that's one of the things we ask people oftentimes in our little questionnaire is, how far away are you from your router? Because that router typically has an Ethernet there. <laughs> like they may not they may not know that it does. They may have never connected something to it. But wow, does Wi-Fi make a difference? You know, Wi-Fi is the devil. You know, and it really, especially when people are in a uh, congested area, so they're in an apartment complex, an office. It doesn't matter how fast their internet is. The Wi-Fi is going to break up. And so, um, so they, you know, you can be at Google with a 10 gig connection and you're still going to break up because you're in an office with a bunch of uh, devices talking to the access points. So internet is the first thing, you know, and then of course we want to see 10, 10, you know, 10 up, 10 down minimum, bare, bare minimum, you know, for, for those types of things. And really what you're looking for is 2020, but 10, 10 is, is minimum. We get under that. We start sending out warning letters to our clients like, Hey, the bandwidth isn't very good. It may not turn out well. Um, and then after that, audio. So we want to get we want to get you. We generally want to get you a mic. If there's one thing I'm going to send somebody, it's going to be the microphone. Um, and so getting the audio fixed because people will look at a lot of bad video, but bad audio will shorten the amount of the, your average view time, which is what we measure. Uh, lighting is next because good lighting will fix a bad camera. <laughs> so so lighting, you know, how do we get how do we get them towards a window? And do we do we are we testing them at the same time? You know, those types of things. And then camera, you know, getting a good webcam, and then finally the background and trying to pick that background. And and then a lot of the fine tuning that that Josh talked about is, you know, like the, you know, looking at where are they framed and how are they framed and what's behind them? Is there anything distracting? Also, if you're working with a brand, 
make sure there's not other brands behind them. Those are little checklists we've had. To, you know, we've had issues where you know we're doing something for one comic company, <laughs> someone's got something from the other comic company behind them in a prominent place, and um, and that becomes problematic. <laughs> so 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 you have to you know kind of pay attention. You want to scan their background and make sure that there's nothing there that's going to be a distraction um, for for people as they look at it. Nigel. Yeah, I don't know how you ask this question, but I, I've done a couple of podcasts where people have turned up with notes and all but want to read out things. And and if you're dealing with, you know, high-end professionals, people who are used to broadcast, maybe that's not a problem. But the lower end and people in bring sort of safety things with them. And clearly you you don't want them to sit and read stuff. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We're going to Shannon. Uh, I was going to say, when sending out materials for guests, the most important thing is that it's short um, and bullet points and be very specific. Because as soon as you start to get really long and, and it's and it's easy because there's a lot to think about and there's a lot involved. But if if you if you get too detailed for many people, they're just too busy. They won't read. They'll forget about it. And to Alex's point, it put put them in the same order especially if you're going to do a tech check with someone in advance or even the, the day of you're going to do a tech check, you want that tech check. You, it's your bullet point list too. And those are the things you're going to go over with them. But as soon as you get into paragraphs and long paragraphs, uh, people tend to glaze over them. I know that that I do. Alex. Yeah, I often joke with people that, that my my response time is proportionate to the length of the email. <laughs> and and it can very quickly get to a point where it, there, will, there will be no response time. About 12 lines is about the max you can send me before I just go, oh, I'll get back to that and I never do. Um, and so the um, so we I try to keep things within 12 lines and I really do everything I can to try to get them within six lines. So this is what you're going to get. I oftentimes anticipate that I might have a couple of things, a couple of interactions with you. I'm not going to try to tell you everything you need to know in the first one because you won't read any of it. And so, so especially when you're dealing with VIPs, you have to be very, very careful of that, of that kind of um, that process. The other thing is, is that getting that prep day done two or three or four days ahead of time, that's the most painful part for them typically. And the more distance there is, there's too much distance and more than a week, they might change things and then you're in trouble. If it's less than a day or two, they may still remember the pain that happened of of getting there. And so having it two, three, four days away, they've already gone through the trouble. And that's really when you pick at what they're doing and try to get it just right. Then when they show up, there's a lot less to work, worry about and and, um, and you can kind of work through it. But that that's why those those prep days are so important. One of the things that was really useful for us when we were doing a lot of interviews is we used to send a one sheet, looked a little bit like an infographic, and it just had things to think about before your interview. We'd send it a week in advance. But basically, the first actually, the first block of it was uh, try to get a good night's sleep and maybe get a little light exercise, take a walk and just kind of relax yourself. We were trying to get them into the mental idea of Take it easy. This is going to be easy. And then we talked about things not to wear, things to wear. This was back in the old days where we didn't have all the HDR stuff. So, you know, uh, solid white and solid black. And we had tight patterns and had just a few things to just say when we closed with that same thing you're hearing over and over again. We want you to have a great time. We want you to be successful. And it was as much emotional management. If you focus on these things, maybe you won't be focused on how will I look? Is my hair too long? Blah, 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 blah. Um, it's that kind of battle often getting people ready to go on. Next question. 
Roy Myers in Bel Air, Maryland writes in, is it useful to send guests technical guidelines? For example, minimize echoes before meeting with them, or should this come after the meet to reinforce what we discussed? Josh, what are your thoughts? It depends on if I'm um, if I do have an appointment with them to meet with a tech check. Um, so it's a bit of a triage um, uh, strategy. Um, like Shannon mentioned, if you overload them with things, the, the more you tell them, the less impactful each additional statement is. So if if you um, do have an opportunity, I prefer to do a tech check prior to the event in such a time in, in early enough advance to where I can do something uh, if need be or make adjustments beforehand. Um, if not, um, at the at the very least, I'll have them come in early. If we're doing a tech check, I do emphasize that I'd like them to use the equipment and the setting uh, that they intend to come in on so that the, you know they don't show you uh, one thing and then surprise you with another. That's happened before. Um, or sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll not divulge that. Um, it really depends on how much time that you have to, to talk with them. If you only have one uh, uh, sort of brief um, brief communication with them before they come in and time is short, then having an infographic or having something uh, with some uh, the biggest bullet points uh, it really is the best that you can do with communication. Before that, I'll try to, to have them acknowledge that they have seen it, sometimes asking them a question that indicates that they actually have seen it. Alex. And the, the stature of the person that we're talking to usually has an inverse relationship to how much we send them. So if, if you're coming in and you're just, you're really excited to be, you're a big fan of LeBron and you're coming in, we'll send you a really long thing of like, don't mess this up. You know, you're the, you're by, you know, you're a fan and, and we want you to make sure, and so we'll send you a lot. If you're LeBron, we won't send you anything. We'll just talk to you on the phone, you know? So, so the, uh, so you have to, you have to really gauge what people's time frame is and also what their engagement is. Like how important is this event to them? And, and because if it's not important, you start sending them a lot of stuff they'll just start ignoring you jason next question Stephen kimbrough in berkeley california writes in shannon can you emphasize the importance of working with checklists how do you build and add to your portfolio of lists boy i have become such a convert to checklists and it was because of that uh uh Stanford graduation thing that Atul Gawande, who's a writer who uh, writes for a lot of the big magazines, talked about the power of checklists and getting things right. And I fully subscribe to his idea. If you can develop checklists, particularly as you go out for production, you go out for interviews, you go out for anything. And it's just a go one by one through the steps that you have learned in the past lead to success and make sure you don't miss them over the course of time. I, it has changed. It's changed my packing for remote shoots. It's changed the way I do interviews. I always have a series of checklists of things that I that I have figured out that I want to at least start with, and then uh, wow, just the calmness that comes from I went through my checklist and I know I have every little thing I need to succeed at this. Huge for me, Shannon. Your thoughts? Um. So I have I have lots of different checklists and I have a long I have I have one long checklist and before I send it out I think about uh what are we what are we um what are we doing on this event did we send them a kit uh did we did we send them just a microphone did we not send them anything was there something you know specific that that to this event so you really have to look through everything 
that is just, you have to think through everything that is applicable to this event and then refine your checklist per event. You, there's not just one standard checklist. Like, so oftentimes if, if there are, you know, if there's, if you're not going to send them a microphone, uh, the check will be very different than if you're going to send them because then you're going to have to send them specifics about that mic and how to connect that mic. And, and so, so it's really designing specific checklists per event. And again, I'll reiterate short, I make them short, as short as I can. Absolutely. I do remember that thinking of changing my thinking from a checklist as just a set of text to a measurement device. Am I going to be complete? And if I've properly built a checklist and I've got all the check boxes filled in, I know I am properly complete before I start a task. And that just makes me feel better about it. Let's go and to I'll, the next question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead I was Sharon. just going to say one, one more thing. If you, if you think you don't need a checklist, you do, you will forget. <laughs> I have been doing this for so long and, and I, you know, I admit I go into, I go into some, uh, you know, some, some events or if I have to last minute check someone and I, you know, don't have my checklist in front of me, inevitably, I will forget something and then I'll kick myself when I'm watching the show because we're already in it. So it's, it's something that don't think you don't need a checklist. You do. Amen. All right. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada writes, and I had a situation where a guest we were trying to schedule ghosted us. I politely recommended they try to wear neutral colors and avoid patterns as they don't always translate well on camera. I'll provide additional details. Alexander thoughts. Yeah, this one upset me a bit. Uh, my client, who's the host of this podcast, he often does a lot of the booking or the initial d uh, discussion with these guests, and he handed it off to me, and I sent an email. They actually asked, is there anything that I can do but, or anything I need to know before I come on? And I politely suggested this just the way I worded it in the in the question they ghosted us a few months went by and finally uh we heard back from them my my client had reached out to them again and they basically said quote well I don't think we're going to be a quote good fit uh I found your producer micromanagey and it really upset me and I don't know how else I could have worded that but I don't think I asked them anything unreasonable did I Alex you know, you just always, without looking at it, you have to look at what the, how the email was structured. It is, you know, there's a lot of ways to say things and you just have to look at how, and I've said, I've sent things out that have been too terse or too wordy. So too wordy can oftentimes feel like that. And so the, um, you know, you know, I don't, you know, there's a, there's a saying and I don't, I don't have a better way to say it, but it is, you know, the, the, we, tonality ma makes a difference, I guess. And so, um, you know, and, and you said, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't say we should eat that, right? I didn't say we should eat that. 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 I didn't say we should eat that, right? I just said the same thing over and over and over again. And the sentence has a completely different meaning by how I enunciated the words. Then that's just words. You know, that's just enunciation. So we want to always, when we say, well, I just said this and then someone reacted badly, you want to really take that in and it's not, and not have it, it might be them. It, it really could be, but you always want to take every piece of feedback as it was you in the sense that how do I, if I'm going to be a hundred percent accountable for everything that happens around me, that it's successful, how do I change the structure of what I do so that that doesn't happen again? Because you have no power over them reacting. You have, of how they react to things, you have power over how you 
do things. And so a lot of the things that Shannon and I do in a lot of these things is based on thousands of interactions and people having the same interaction, same response to us as they had with you. <laughs> so, so, and, and you try to, you try to carve off those sharp edges and you won't get them all carved off. And some people are just difficult, you know, like, like, in, and, and so um, you have to realize that some people are just going to be that way. Uh, but you want to keep on looking at, um, and that's why we try to send out as little as possible ahead of time. So you send out a little bit of like some guidance and then you might tell them about their shirt and everything else as kind of a side comment while you're doing a tech check. You know, like, like, oh, you know, it's sometimes better and you joke about it or something. So there's other ways to deliver that information that isn't one big paper. And that, that might be something to think about. Josh. That uh, intonation that Alex mentioned is impossible from a text medium. Uh, we don't have it. Sometimes you can you put the, you know, that's why people use the emojis and the smiley faces to try and make up for the fact. Uh, understand that when you're communicating in a text-based um, medium, you're automatically at a disadvantage. Um, things can be taken um, in a certain way, and perhaps you didn't uh, intend them to be taken a certain way. You're always at a disadvantage. If you can, engage with them in a conversation first. If the first thing that you say to someone in an email is something of a correction, I know you don't mean it that way, but it could come off as saying, I don't like you. You're not going to say it like that. You're not going to phrase it like that, but that's the way it is received oftentimes. And so starting off on a conversation, if there's a way to get an exchange first, um, and people have different conversation styles. Some people prefer a terse message that just has the facts and details, and they appreciate the pithy uh, you know, terseness with which you communicate. Other people, you can take cues from their uh, salutations. You know, some people are more bubbly and they may be expecting to have more of an exchange. So you can take some cues from that and be able to have an exchange. Just understand that you're, you're starting off a disadvantage whenever you're using a text medium. Understand that. Do the best you can to mitigate those things and take the cues from, from how they've communicated to you. Nigel. Yeah, according to the three laws of performance, people react 100% occurrence to how something occurs to them. So it's all about how that occurs to them. And you won't know, as Josh just pointed out, how it occurs to them um, when you do this in text. I use a particular guest, for a speaker, quite often for a conference. And he he occurs to himself as a crazy, crazy, zany, fun kind of guy. Whether I think he is or not is not the point. That's how he occurs to himself. So when I communicate with him, I do that in the context of knowing how the world occurs to him. And so there are just sometimes you're going to get to people who you don't have a chance to know how the world occurs to them. And the way that email occurred to them was somehow insulting. And sometimes you're going to win those, sometimes you're going to lose them. Alexander, you had a follow-up? Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I don't want to ambush guests when they show up to say, well, I don't like your shirt. I think you should change that or we should do a wardrobe change. So that's that's why I, I emailed them, but I'm now looking at my email. So the la very last email I sent to them, we had already booked a time. They confirmed. They said, okay, I'm going to be there. And I emailed them with, in, this, in these exact words, one last request, if you can try and wear neutral colors and avoid anything with patterns as they don't always translate well on camera. And that's how I ended it. And that's, I guess they took it negatively. So yeah, you're never going to know what was going on in their life. Maybe you just got associated. Maybe, you know, their dog had a problem that morning or something like that. It's, there's so much randomness in this. Jason, your thoughts? 
Yeah, let me give you an example, which is entirely out of your control. Let's say the last time they were on any sort of broadcast medium, YouTube, what have you, um, they they said something really stupid, and there were all sorts of comments about it, and they've just been kicking themselves on the matter, and they just happen to be wearing a loud color. You just automatically activated all of that annoyance, just instantly flooding back, and it's not your fault at all. So, you know, just, just understand, this is tricky. Shannon, you get the final word. And instead of a request, maybe it's just a list of best practices that you send them. Absolutely. All right. Let's go on to the next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona writes in, how much and what kinds of research on a guest's history and expertise does a good host do? And I don't have the list in front of me. Alex, can you call the next guest? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So the, uh, something uh, crashed. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, yeah, for the guest history, the, the best hosts are going to do that on their own. They're going to do a lot of research on them. Uh, a lot of times we will do a small dossier if we, if we're for some of the larger ones of like, this is who this person is. And there's a quick description of each one of them, maybe some links if, to their Wikipedia page if they have one. Um, and so there's a couple things that are, we try to give people the highlights. The big thing that they need to know is the, the most important research is their name, that they, how they like to be um, addressed uh, there and how they, how their name is pronounced, their proper title, and if they have any, you know, suffixes like PhD that's important to them, because some of them it's not like, you, you know, it's, it's John Smith PhD and John will go, oh, don't, don't use the PhD. It's fine. You know, or, but most people do, if they, if they went through the trouble of PhD, they went on there. So anyway, so the, um, uh, but, but under, that's the most important research you can do for a host is to make sure that they say their name correctly and that they understand what their title is and what they do. And, um, and then after that, a lot of times it's left up to the research of the, of the host there. Josh, next. Yeah, I agree. Uh, those um, honorifics are important. Uh, you might have, a, depending on your part of the role, talking about guest preparation, you may have a role in uh, managing their script. So in that sense, you may have been part of the collaboration process with them, or there may be some context that you have whenever you're selecting the outline or script that they're using. And Sharon, Shannon. Whoops, you're muted, Shannon. Can't hear you, Shannon. Shannon, I believe you're muted. Sorry about that. Thank you. Um, so this isn't really specifically to the about research for the host, but even just research the guest from a, a preparation standpoint. So I've had sometimes just lists of people that I have to go through and prep, and I won't have you know I may not know who they are, and um, and so that there have been a few times where I wish I would have. Like I wish I would have known the background on on who I was prepping. So I think also from a from a prepper standpoint, you should know who you're prepping, what they do, what's their relevance to the show, and uh, just to avoid any to avoid anything that you know you may or may not want to say. Um, I just think it's important to know who they are, and that just comes from experience. Where uh, again, ha being handed lists of people and emails, and and I just start you know going through um, my guest preparation. Nice. Let's get to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, when you ship a kit to a guest, how do you minimize the friction and create a quality guest experience? Alex, help us out. 
There's a couple of things that we've done that have both worked and not worked. <laughs> Number one is you want to make it relatively easy for them to get it in the door. Uh, so um, you think about like how big the cases are, how heavy they are. Do they have to walk up a sta- set of stairs? Um, you know, those kinds of things are important for them to kind of to kind of know what you're sending them there. So you want to keep it light. We've used in the past Pelican cases, but more recently we tend to lean towards um, cardboard boxes. And the reason for that is weight. It's less expensive. It's easier to move around. It's easier to stack. Um, so, and less bangs up the house less, you know, so you have to think about those things. The second thing is make sure that it's easy to take out and put back in. So when, however you have it set up, if it's a simple one, it's not as important, but as you build something more complete, you want notches cut out of, 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 of your padding so that they know, oh, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here, this goes here. Um, if it's a simple one, you might send a small description on a more, more, complicated one we send out pdfs with lots of pictures with a video that they can watch that they that's each step that lines up with the pdf um, and then we get on the a call with them to set it up these are like with film cameras and lights and good mics and all all kinds of stuff we did that a lot more in covid uh, if we can we'll send somebody out for that kind of kit to just do it for them at this point but those are the kind of but their level of that and then the main thing to get it back if you have to get it back is make sure that you send tape and the return label. <laughs> so you'd be surprised at how long something will sit at someone's house because they didn't have any tape. You know, and so so you know, like the kind of tape that you need. You don't they don't want to use scotch tape for it. We've gotten boxes back with lots of scotch tape. But those are the things that you want to um you, you tape and the return label are really important or you may they may sit there for months. And Josh Kaufman. Yeah, plus one um what Alex said about making things less friction for them. Um uh, you should have some type of idea about what the kit looks like whenever you set that up. Um, a really low friction way of doing it is simply they open up, plug it into power and Ethernet, and then you remote control and take it uh, take it from them. Uh, if you can get them a diagram that shows them what to what to expect or a video, it's helpful as well. One time, <laughs> we had a kit that had to be shipped from one uh, participant to another participant, and there wasn't a lot of time to do the preparation for it, so they just saw it as a box of stuff, which they kindly unpacked for us. <laughs> <laughs> worked out anyway, but you know, some of those ambiguities you can work out. Um, if the remote control, um, aspect of things really solves a lot of the problems where they just get it and they contact you before they open the package and that can, um, eliminate any kind of friction in that way. Sometimes, um, they can give you a better address. Uh, if there's high crime in the area, their residents, they may request a different address. So getting those details out can, uh, can head problems off at the pass. Let's go to the next question. Roy Myers in Bel Air, Maryland writes in, after the guest appears, what sort of follow-up do you do to strengthen a relationship? And what's the best time to request a future appearance? Alex. I would love to say that we follow up with everybody when we're done, but usually, you know, in a live environment, when we finish, um, there's usually a thank you email that goes out. You want to be very responsive to that. Uh, if someone else does it, I have to admit that for me, I, I tend to move on pretty quickly. I might, I might thank them. What we really worry about is making sure that they had a great experience all the way up to the event. They get through the event and then we're responsive to anything else. This is a, this is a key piece of any event. You're going to have a bunch of records. You know, a bunch of things that need to get done and people are going to ask for those things. And it's really important to do those things. You can take a, an event that went perfectly well and ruin it by not sending them the records <laughs> or not sending them out something that they needed or a link that they needed to do it. Um, and they'll, that's all they'll remember. What, they're going to remember what, whatever was at the end. They won't remember the hard prep. They'll remember a great event. And then the key is to be responsive to whatever they're asking for afterwards that they want to promote it, get it sorted out as fast as you can. Shem. 
I, I was just going to say that that little thank you note. So I've got some prepared thank yous. And and then I just immediately, as soon as they're done, I make them feel good about it. Great show. Thank you for spending, you know, for taking the time. We know you're really busy. You know, customize it per guest. But really getting in the habit of immediately, as soon as that show's over, send that. And even if you don't do any of anything else or any other follow up, follow up, it's a thank you. And so if you need to reach out to that person again, you've, you, you know, you've thanked them and uh, they know that you appreciated their time. Josh. Yeah. Um, trying to get better at doing that for this show. Um, by the way, if you'd like to help out as a volunteer, we're taking, we're taking on help. So if you'd like to help out in, uh, in freeing up some of the load to do that, um, professionally, I do tend to have much better, uh, track record in thanking people. I prefer not to have a robotic uh, thank you note. Um, although, you know, if that's all you can do, sometimes uh, that's all you can do. But I like to mention something specifically why I thought the event uh, worked out um, in the e- e- email that I sent afterwards. Um, and also, um, I'll send them either the specific uh, link to how they can share that event with others, or we may even specifically, depending on the, the value of the guest, we may specifically make something particularly for them that's cut down and concise that they would be more likely to share it. So they view that as something that's a valuable asset. They're more likely to share that with their uh, community. Jason, real quick. Even if a production is not my own, I, I usually try to take it upon myself to thank the person if the person is there at my behest. And that has worked very well for me going down the line too. Alex. And, and real quick, all of that prep work that you did before the show um, will make a big difference in whether they want to share it later. <laughs> so, so you know, the you know having them look good and sound good and have a great background when they look at it, especially if it's way better than a lot of the other things they've been on, they're much more likely to talk about it and share it. So that's one of the payoffs for doing the work, not just the show itself, but how how they feel again about that about that product. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada writes in, speaking of prep days, is it worth asking for a rehearsal session with an insecure guest days before appearing? Alex. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's always good to do that. Uh, it's rarely available. So, um, you know, a lot of times we try to do rehearsals with folks to, to make that work. And, and for the biggest events that we do, we absolutely do rehearsals. We do some, in some cases, we do rehearsals for days. Like we'll rehearse, um, you know, some of the larger events for a week, um, you know, to make sure that everyone understands exactly what they're doing and how they're going through it. But oftentimes your rehearsal is going to come earlier in the day or right before the show is, is kind of when you oftentimes get those rehearsals. Josh. The earlier, the better. Uh, like we talked about that um, miscommunications with subtext, um, the earlier you can get to them, the better. Um, and these are soft skills uh, when you're talking to, to people. Um, you try to come off as their advocate, a friend, um, helping them to, uh, to do things. If people feel that you have their best interest at heart, they'll, uh, they'll take it the correct way. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada writes in for remote guests, instead of sending a written guideline on things they need to consider before joining on Zoom, would it be better to create a a video that they can watch that showcases what an ideal setup would be? Alex, your thoughts? 
we've done that. It's not a lot of people watch it. Like, you know, so it's a lot of, it, you end up putting something together unless it's a kit build and they need, they need it for instructions. Uh, we find that the best practice videos just don't have a lot of view time, you know, like that you send it to them and, and you just don't see a lot of people actually playing them through. They kind of want at best an infographic, you know, the way Josh talks about it is oftentimes better because it's something they can scan and very quickly understand what, you know, some basic pieces. Um, but it's going to be a lot faster than, than them trying to watch a video. Josh, real quick. Oops, you're muted. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I sometimes I'll do that. Uh, I'll do both, maybe um, in the event that they use it. Uh, if you're sending uh, information to a large number of guests, you can use a bell diagram, or a bell curve, to determine who's actually going to look at it and who's going to read it. Sometimes that extra information does help the general population of things, but I wouldn't replace the infographic. I would put that in case, so you have the bullet points in front, and then if you want to read more, the information's there. Next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona writes in, when a host is preparing a verbal intro for a guest, what guidelines do you try to follow? What do you avoid? Well, you want to, oh, Alex, go ahead. I was just going to say that the, the main thing is, is you got to make sure that they're, the, Get their name right. <laughs> like, get the name right. Like that is, I can tell you how many edits I make. Go, we, oh, I, I, I want to say the name a different way or, or do something else. And so uh, preparing the verbal intro is the getting the name right, getting the their title correct or honorific that's that, that may be there. And then finally getting what, it's not just their title, but what do they do and what do they do as it pertains to the appearance that they're having? They may do a lot of things, but you need to, you need to very quickly get to like what that is. Um, you want to try to keep it as if it's, if it's that only that person, you can have a longer 45 second or minute setup, but otherwise you want to try to keep it as short as you can, because if you have five or six people, that turns into be half your show. We've had people like do intros. I've had uh hosts do intros that lasted three or four or five minutes in a 20 minute talk. And you were just like, well, now we don't, we do took that out. So you want to, you want to think about that as well. Josh. Yeah. As far as the guest prep is concerned, there's a, uh, there should be a good pipeline between when you're doing your tech checks and uh, acquiring information where you're able to sit down talk with them. What is their name, their pronunciation guide, and uh, also relationships with other panelists and be able to send that in, in something that you can give the host so that they're well informed. And the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, when do you send a crew member to a guest's residence or office instead of sending a kit? Alex? When you have budget. <laughs> so like whenever you have budget, you, you, you want to do that. Uh, for, for large events, uh, you, you always want to request that. A lot of times we send, we might, now that you may want to send them to a place if they're at a shop or there's something that's interesting about where they are, you want to shoot it there. But a lot of times shooting at a venue, at where that person is, is very disruptive. We're not getting set up an hour before, you know, or half an hour before. You know, we're, when we're sending a crew member out, they're usually arriving four hours before the event. They want to be set up two hours before the event. They want to, you know, and so there's, there's a lot there to, to, um, to do. And when we send crew members out, it's usually because it absolutely has to work. And so and oftentimes we send out teams of two, um, you know, one lead and one um, assist. And that's partially so that if someone is stuck somewhere where someone has to stand next to the gear and they walk somewhere else and come back or, or any of those things, you can do that. And so it's, it's usually a team of two and it goes there and they go there. And again, we so oftentimes we'll try to find somewhere else for them to go if we, unless they have something we want to show. Otherwise, we make sure to warn them that there's going to be people there for a little while. Josh? 
Yeah, plus one. And Alex said, so there should be tiering systems to where you allow people to have a higher experience. So your gold or your platinum experience, wouldn't they would expect to have that um, you know white glove treatment. Uh, sometimes there's a complex. Uh, People would have like their their home might be the venue. There might be several people that are there in the kit. So having something to where you know that you'll be able to prepare your camera and lighting and audio much better than having to try to talk them through it. Of course, like I said it's it's that's a budget uh, constraint. And so if it's something that you have a, a remote guest and you can do that, or if your market is such that you're um, talking to people locally, uh, that might be something that might not be too big of a lift, but if it is some, someone, you know, across the country or something that may be a, a little heavier consideration for your, your production. Shannon, final word. Yeah. And it, um, it depends on the budget, like everyone said, and the, and the, you know, is the guest a VIP, but because what we're asking someone to do, we're asking our guest to be an audio engineer, a DP, uh, and you know a director. We're at, we're I mean we're asking someone a lot of someone, and if we want to get the the most we can get at, out of them, it's hard to ask one person to do all of that. So do you have the budget? Is this person uh, is is this event going to be something that's going to live on? How many you know are lots of people going to watch it? So those those factors come in, but just think about what we're asking the guests to do. Last question. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in, what percent of guests return the kits and what's the cost of a minimum kit, median kit, and a high-end kit? Josh, real quick. Um, you should probably count in about 10 to 15% loss uh, in your send, sent out kits uh, just in, in general. Um, it depends a lot upon you know how easy it was, um, how, how easy you've made that to return the kits. And the kits could be as simple as sending the person a microphone, um, a microphone and a camera, maybe something a little more elaborate with lighting um, might be the, the different tiered systems of kits that we might send out. Alex? Yeah, there, it, it depends on, uh, what's interesting is there's kind of an inverse relationship to the cost and, and how often time, the, how the loss. So what I mean by that is the big kits tend to get sent back because there's a lot of stuff and they understand that it's expensive. And little kits like a mic or something, sometimes it's harder to get back. So they just like, oh, it's another mic. And so uh, so those things are a little bit more difficult. The things that definitely impact those things are the things like tape, the things like uh, a FedEx label, the things like it's easy to pack back in. You might pack something really tightly and it all makes sense when you did it, but now it doesn't make sense to get it back in there for them. And so having those things kind of figured out definitely improves it. We, I think when we started, we were probably at a 50% return rate. And I think now we sit across all of the kits that we do probably closer to... Um, you know, twenty percent uh, loss rate, maybe ten percent, in, in a good in a good show. But you do lose some, and we calculate that into the cost of the kits. Excellent! Wow, what an exciting day! Thank you Shannon all, everybody on the panel. Oh, Shannon, do you have one more? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. I, I was just gonna. I was gonna say that that sometimes we we send someone else to go pick up the kit, depending on the price of the kit and and the importance of the kit. And if someone's actually in a bigger city, it might be a little bit easier for us to get someone to go pick up that kit. The return rate goes up um, 100% if if we if we send someone. And all we have to do is say, just put it on your porch. You know, put it. Um, you know, don't repack it. You don't have to do this. And uh, and some and and if the kit's really expensive or if it's an item in there that we really want back, that's what we do. Understood. 
Great. Anyway, thank you very much, Shannon, for being a special guest today. Also to the entire panel who added zillions of years of expertise to this. We hope you learned a lot in this. Uh, two little quick things. So first of all, I wanted to note that the volunteer training with Alex, first Saturday of every month, it is the first of the month. That means this coming Saturday, uh, he's going to be on at 6 a.m. So uh, if you want to be a part of the volunteer crew, this is your chance to talk to Alex and do that. Like 9 a.m. <laughs> 9 a.m.? Oh. 6 a.m. 6 a.m. I don't 6... think would be 6 a.m. Oh, you're right. Early for me, yeah. So I have so. 10 a.m., but at 9 a.m. Pacific. Or 10 a.m. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, we'll take take a look at the emails. Yeah, it, it might yeah, be 10. You. I may be wrong, but it's definitely not six. It won't be six. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Hey. To our producers, thank you so much for being here, for asking your questions. You really do drive the show, and this whole thing wouldn't exist without you. So we really appreciate it. You asked extraordinarily interesting and valuable questions today. You do that every day on the show, so we really appreciate what you do. To the panelists, the show, you know, everybody's volunteering their time here to answer questions. And every single panelist that's appeared here since the day the show started has been a massive contributor to have how this all success this any success we've had and particularly near and dear to my heart the crew in the back end the people who work tirelessly behind the scenes to make this happen every day from literally all over the world they come together they volunteer their time and they make this possible none of this would be possible without them don't forget after hours is running 24 7 when the show isn't here and we will see you all tomorrow thank you very much for tuning in Here's your warm up, Lindsay. Go knock him dead. Exactly. First, I have to drive. First, I have to pack, finish packing, then drive, then prep. Shannon, so good to see you. Shannon. The show. Clubs, you're muted, for, even for whispering. You should start saying you're gated perfectly.